Well, good evening, church family. Since retirement, Karen and I and our grandchildren have been worshiping on Sunday mornings because Karen works at the desk on Sunday mornings, so that means I haven't seen many of your faces in quite some time. So it's good to see your faces again and to notice that you're aging rather gracefully. You're doing a great job of that. Well, when Pastor Allen called me this past Thursday morning and asked me to teach God's Word this weekend because of some health problems, I immediately stated the obvious. I said, Alan, I'd be glad to help, but I'm going to have to reach into my files and use a previous teaching. There's just no time to prepare something new in less than a day. So for that reason, my message today will sound pretty familiar to anybody who has been here for more than a couple of years. But you know, that's all right. That's all right, and here's why. Truth can't be repeated too often in a world where errors and lies are repeated every day. And truth can't be heard too often in a world where errors and lies are heard every day. This world in which you and I live is one in which the one scripture refers to as a liar and the father of lies advances an unrelenting disinformation campaign that makes the work of political operatives and Russian bots look like child's play in comparison. It's a disinformation campaign to distract us, to distract God's people, to divert our attention away from the truth, to lead us to doubt the truth, to dilute the truth. It's designed to set our feet on detours away from the truth until we finally essentially deny and disobey the truth and forfeit our capacity to discern the truth and discern our compromised condition. And both scripture and church history remind us God's people can and often do fall prey to Satan's disinformation campaign. None of us are immune to detours and deceptions. So that's why, have you noticed, God often repeats himself in Scripture because there are things we just need to hear again and again. So today on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I want to repeat a teaching that for the last several decades has placed this fellowship, this body of believers, in alignment not only with Dr. King's dream, but with the King of King's desires. It's a teaching that has set the foundation for who we are and what we're attempting to accomplish under God. And even though it's familiar, like the familiar and often repeated refrains of amazing grace, the familiar truths in this teaching can help us stay the course because that course is always difficult and always challenging. Now with that, our text this weekend is Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. David wrote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. 
It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. I've entitled this teaching, The Place of Blessing. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to accurately and faithfully proclaim your word. And by that same Spirit, help every one of us to hear the portion of it we need to hear today. And then help us to apply it in faith. As always, I pray this for the honor of Christ in his church, for the welfare of the people he loves, and for the sake of our witness in a desperate world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And even though you're out of practice, as we listen for God's voice this evening, may the Lord be with you. Very good. You haven't forgotten. There's a Peanuts cartoon in which Lioness is watching the television. And Lucy walks into the room and demands that he change the channel. And she raises a bald fist as she makes her demand and threatens him if he doesn't comply. Well, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Asked an indignant Linus. These five fingers, said Lucy. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this, into a single unit, they form a weapon terrible to behold. What channel do you want, says Linus. And then after changing the channel, he looks away and he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you guys come together like that? You know, that same question could often be asked of the church. Why can't God's people transcend ethnic, cultural, national, tribal, and political differences and come together into a mighty weapon of God's kingdom? I'd like to suggest that that question is even more relevant today than perhaps at any time in our nation's history, given our highly polarized, divisive social context. And that question has always been relative or relevant if you consider the incredible promises that God attaches to unity in Psalm 133. Now, if you're going to understand God's word, context is always important. So what's the context of this psalm? Well, most believe Psalm 133 was written by David after a bloody civil war. One that was made even more bitter by the fact that the insurrection was led by one of David's own sons, a member of his household. And if you recall, that son lost his life in the latter days of the conflict. And for David, his death was the exclamation point at the end of a painful, bitter sentence. It sealed the divide between a dad and his son like a tomb. It made any future reconciliation impossible. Now, having tasted all of that bitterness, all that division, all that death, David was eager to celebrate the blessings of unity. 
And many believe the Spirit inspired him to write this psalm as he watched his countrymen streaming into the city of Jerusalem. People who just a week or so prior had hated one another, murdered one another, cursed one another, vilified one another, now marched into the holy city praising God and carrying worship banners instead of swords and spears. And as David looked at that scene, he wrote, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That word behold is a powerful and an important word. Remember, John used that word at Jesus' baptism when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the original language, the word behold can indicate, look, here's something you don't see every day. Here's something out of the ordinary. Here's something God approves of. And you need to give it attention and hear what God has for you in it. Now, sadly, many centuries later, brethren dwelling together in unity is still something that we don't see every day and something that we don't see as often as we should professing christian churches in the united states that are truly multicultural by proportion by design by adjustment constitute less than three percent and for that reason i'd like to suggest that david's words indicate when god finds a group of people doing what he desires he considers it something to behold god draws attention to multicultural churches because they witness to his desire they look the way his family was meant to look they offer the world a tiny glimpse of the heart of god and the kingdom of God. And I'd like to say having God draw attention to you is a far more effective way to impact your community and witness to your faith than slick graphics or a charismatic pastor. So if we're serious about showing people the heart of God, if we're serious about making the gospel attractive to broken people, unity in diversity is indispensable. Now, David goes on to remind us that spirit birth unity is what God expects, and he has every right to expect it. The Hebrew word good, behold how good, indicates something beautiful, something that literally is a delight in the sight of God. But it also indicates something that's right, something that's appropriate something that's correct, and as a result, something God requires of us. See, true unity just doesn't happen because we share a room, share a lobby, or enjoy being with people who share our faith. It happens when we work at it because we know it's the right thing to do, even if it means we have to abandon our comfort zones, our prejudices, our fears, and our security blankets of sameness, simple answers, stereotypes, and generalizations. In short, disciples who are submitted to God will work at unity. Now that reality is communicated by the words dwell together. 
Taken together, those words indicate something more than a fleet, shallow encounter. They speak of an intentional, ongoing, conscious group effort at seeking and doing the will of God. They, consist of, they indicate a stubborn, consistent pursuit that involves significant investment. They speak of staying put when the going gets rough. They speak of perseverance and persistence. Now, I think you know many folks applaud unity as a concept. And a smaller number participate in brief expressions of unity. But God wants more than that. He wants those who dwell together in soul-deep unity over the long haul and do it continually with grit and with grace. Now, I know it's true. Only the Spirit of God can create unity. But Ephesians 4 tells us that as the people of God, we are to keep that unity that God has created. We are to grow it. We are to guard it. And we are to humbly submit our comfort and our convenience and our egos to God's great plan. Now, given David's words, and then the subsequent unambiguous words of Jesus and his prayer that Ross referenced earlier, I don't think it would be judgmental or unfairly negative or harsh to suggest that churches that shun the hard work of dwelling in unity give indication that they are not yet fully yielded to God. Even though they may use his name in song. And individuals who shun that hard work well, they indicate the same thing about their own hearts. To put it pretty bluntly, the refusal to work toward and preserve God's desired unity is sin. Because Scripture is clear, when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that is sin, a sin of omission. Now, before we move on, two reminders. First of all, Throughout our nation's history, there have always been churches willing to reach across the divides and dwell together in unity, but it takes two to tango, and many times they've been rebuffed. Secondly, it's unity that God desires, not uniformity. Diversity does not mean everybody acts like the majority. Whenever I have the privilege to address pastors and alliance leaders and others on multicultural church experience, I remind them that there's a great difference between unity and diversity and what is called assimilation. In assimilation, the prevailing, controlling culture of the church says to others, you're welcome to be a part of us, but you'll do things our way. And the implication is you'll do things our way because our way is the right way. It's the way God would want things done. And I always tell those folks that assimilation is the demonic counterfeit of unity in diversity. Birth in hell, not in the hallways of heaven. Because God desires unity... I think we can safely say that the desire to dwell in unity is a key indicator of spiritual maturity. The desire to just hang with people who are just like you is a sign of spiritual immaturity. 
It indicates you haven't grown up yet. You're still sucking milk from a spiritual bottle rather than moving on to the diet of meat that God has. Now, David next shifts his attention to the influence of unity, and he uses a word picture, two of them. Here's the first one. He likes it to the, likens it to the anointing oil that was used centuries earlier when Aaron was anointed high priest of Israel. Scented oil was poured over Aaron's head. As it is throughout Scripture, that oil was a symbol of the outpouring of God's spirit, God's power, God's holiness. But that oil didn't remain confined to the place where it was first poured. It flowed down his cheeks, down his beard, onto his garments, and ultimately to the edge of his robes. And the picture David chose reminds us of two important things. Like anointing oil, unity flows down, not up. Unity begins at the top. What do I mean? Who is at the top of the church? Who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. So the top-down picture reminds us that love for Christ must be the starting point for unity. Not political correctness. Not the attempt to look enlightened. Not an attempt to draw new congregants. No, love for Christ must be the starting point. And where love for Christ is healthy and strong, unity and diversity will ultimately be pursued. Unity can't flourish as a program of the church. It only flourishes as the inevitable outcome of loving God. Because when you love God, you love what God loves, and God loves unity in his body. Second, once unity is in place at the head, its influence runs everywhere. You can't contain it. And as it flows, the blessings of unity flow to everyone beneath its influence. During my 36 years as pastor here, known by some as the Dark Ages, I frequently would suggest, because I always strive to be open, I would frequently suggest in services like this that I'm sure there are some who attend ACAC because they value the blessing that follows unity more than they value the unity itself. They like what the unity produces, but they themselves are not so keen on the unity and may not be desirous of contributing to it or working toward it. Why? It could be a host of factors. Fear, inadequate scriptural teaching, past hurts, spiritual blindness, pride, undue influence from negative media, inflammatory media, or just plain old sin. But for a whole host of reasons, not everybody applauds the flag of unity within the body of Christ. Many oppose it, and some just begrudgingly tolerate it. But whether they recognize it or not, if they're in a place where brothers and sisters are dwelling together in unity, they're getting blessed. The ripple effects of the blessing are touching them making their experience with God more attractive. But how much better to be a part of the reason rather than just somebody who takes advantage of the outcome? 
Now, David said that oil touched every part of Aaron's robe. If you've read scripture, you know God often uses clothing analogies to speak to us about our lifestyle and our values. You've all read God saying, put off your old garments, put on the new. And those statements have nothing to do with fashion. They have everything to do with our walk with God. So I think when David used that picture, it's safe to assume he was reminding us that where the Holy Spirit's influence is being honored, our worship, our lifestyles, and our values will reflect God's desire for unity. And a couple other things will reflect God's desire for unity as well. Our political discourse and our words on social media. And where God's people reflect in all that they do a desire for the unity God desires, I would contend that is a far more reliable indicator that that congregation is filled with the Spirit than the number of people who attend on a weekend or the size of the physical campus or hooping and shouting in worship or dancing in the aisles or spouting vague, bogus prophecies that sound more like the horoscope with the scriptural tent. Somebody out there needs some word. You read the ancient prophets, they didn't say somebody out there. They knew who they were speaking of. I mean, there is so much garbage that passes for Christianity today. It just makes me sick. Just garbage, showbiz, religious charlatans, robbing widows' houses. God's frequent clothing analogies also remind us if we aren't careful, if we aren't discerning, if we aren't intentional, the prevailing culture will determine our spiritual wardrobe. And when that's allowed to happen, unity is always one of the first casualties. And then the church begins to look more like a temporary culture club or a political party at prayer than the eternal kingdom and people of God. Now David's second and final word picture had to do with the mountain. And he used that mountain as a symbol of abiding blessing. He talked about Mount Hermon. It's nearly 10,000 feet above sea level. And when the cool air coming down off the snowy peaks of Mount Hermon meets the hot, warm air at the base of the mountain, because it's desert there, those clouds dispense a heavy dew. It's not just some surface moisture that quickly evaporates. It's a heavy dew that saturates everything. It penetrates to the roots of the trees and the plants and into the water table. And as a result, even though it's desert surrounding Mount Hermon, at the base of that mountain, you find fertile gardens and cool water all year long, even during times of drought. Now, David chose his picture carefully. He was telling us that the unity that God desires goes deeper 
than begrudging acceptance, half-hearted engagement, shallow political correctness or display. It's a transforming heart experience. It goes deep into our being and changes us from the inside out. Where brothers dwell together in unity, there is a penetrating love that continues even in dry times. One that refreshes the human heart like an ice-cold drink on a brutally hot day. In ways I don't believe you and I can fully grasp, spirit-birthed unity refreshes our spirits. Now, all of us encounter spiritually dry times, right? Just times when we, we just aren't sensing the Lord's presence. We aren't, we aren't feeling like God's using us. Uh, it's just a spiritually dry time. But I wonder how many people think that the abiding cure for spiritual dryness is not a new church or some new friends or, God forbid, a new husband or a new wife, but a return to the ancient place where refreshing is always found. And that's in the place where brothers dwell together in unity. Now you say, well, how, how does unity in diversity bring refreshing? Let me suggest one way is through the differing perspectives and life experiences of our brothers and sisters with whom we dwell. You see, people of different ethnicities, people of different life experiences and so on, look at life situations differently than we do. And as we get to know them and share with them, they offer us bigger windows into our own situation, windows bigger than the narrow portal of individualism and me and mine and my. I often tell people that my ethnic minority brothers and sisters in this congregation have taught me far more than I ever taught them. And they cause me to see the world differently and to see myself differently and to see the community differently and to see Scripture differently and to see God differently and to see what it means to be a believer differently. Racism, classism, sexism, ungodly division, bigotry, those are Satan's calling cards. Wherever you see those things, you are seeing the work of the devil. They're imprinted on the DNA of this fallen world and this nation. So it's no surprise that we are literally overrun with forces that oppose unity and encourage division, loud strident, incessant voices stirring racial hate, political hate, economic hate, blatantly driving wedges between people because it's good for business. Because inflaming people's hatred brings in a lot of money. But I'm convinced that the greatest enemies of unity within the body of Christ are not the charlatans without, but our own sin within. Our own fears, our own insecurities, our own selfishness, our own pride, and in the case of the American church, our own idols. 
our idols of God and country and supremacy and nationalism, hideous idols that have no place in the body of Christ. And a church that fails to confront those internal demons will ultimately forfeit its blessing and its power. And churches that only speak about the evil in those evil others will never be able to move into the unity that God desires. When that happens, the church loses its cutting edge in evangelism. And those who are hungry for God stuffer, stop, excuse me, stumble over our missing integrity. And in the end, the church becomes the greatest obstacle to its own message. And I think in our nation, as I watch, as I listen, as I read, as, an I, as I hear in many places, the professing church in America is more the problem than it is the solution. It's eventually just becoming people who hate like everybody else hates, but they hate in God's name. And I'm confident in saying, and God hates what they're doing. But if the people of God will embrace what God delights in, David reminds us of this. There God will command the blessing, life forever. Now, life forever is important. We hear that and we think, oh, we'll live forever. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already have that inheritance. Now, life forever means a life now that has the characteristics of that life forever in God's presence that you're looking forward to. Life forever. You'll get in tune with heaven now. And you'll live in tune with heaven now. And that blessing, he says, is commanded. Nothing can keep away God's commanded blessing. If we will together work at unity in dependence upon God, we will taste the wonderful ennobling freedom of suffering one another's failures, weaknesses, injustices, infirmities, humiliations, and sharing one another's joys and victories and conquests. And grace will do its transforming work. I heard this statement years ago, and I've, I've always believed it to be true, and it's one reason why when I show up on Sunday and I see the people coming in or, depending on my arrival time, see the people going out, it's always a blessed experience because somebody said years ago, multicultural congregations witness powerfully simply by showing up and the way they look. They witness by the way they look. When I drive by on a Sunday morning and I see the diversity coming together under the banner of Christ, it's a witness. It's a powerful witness. See, we were intended to be God's rainbow coalition before anybody else coined that phrase. And if we will be, God will shine his spotlight on others. So that what? So that others might see our works and glorify him. 
That's how the church is to influence the world, by showing the world something they don't have and in turn leading them to glorify God. I pray that ACAC will always be that kind of fellowship, that we will continue work at being that kind of fellowship, that we will refuse anything other than that kind of fellowship. And I close with these words. If we will be brothers dwelling together in unity, you can rest assured we will not be for everyone. A lot of people don't want it. But God, God will be for us. And that's worth more <laughs> than all of the validation and applause of broken, misguided humanity. God is doing something here that offers us all commanded blessing. Don't just tolerate it. Don't just assume because you attend here you're part of it. Work at it. Pray for it. Cherish it. Protect it. It's a glimpse of heaven where there is no black, no white, no Hispanic, no Asian, no Democrat, no Republican, no Libertarian, no liberal, no conservative, but one bride of Christ. Okay. The more we look like what we're going to be, the more we'll be what we're supposed to be. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this congregation. It was a great honor and a labor of love to pastor here for so many years. And I'm so glad in my retirement, my family and I have a church to attend where we can feel like the will and the work of Christ is being done. Lord, continue to guide us, continue to change us, continue to transform us, continue to mold us into your image. And at a time when the world in its brokenness desperately needs to see the glory of your kingdom, help us to give them more than conspiracy theories, hate speech, and political idolatry. Help us to give them a picture of your eternal body, one in Christ forever. And help us to remove every barrier to that ultimate goal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Rosaroni, you're up.